0: Hello, and welcome to the Tech Dirt Podcast. I'm Mike Masnick. The world is increasingly technological, so we have better get methodical. Bringing precision to critical digital journalism with the singular vision of a modern monocle. Stopping the copyright police from pulling the wall on us. painting and taking on all the plates to pay control. Document the ways that they aim to take control. scrutinize and do their lies and make a fall. If we don't stand up to them, someone will get hurt to grab a shovel and One of the, I guess, common tropes about Silicon Valley is how much of what comes out of this place is really influenced by what is being written about in the world of science fiction. Sometimes this can be good and useful in that science fiction is really kind of a form of scenario planning and exploring future possibilities. Uh, I still remember stories about how the early Motorola flip phones were directly inspired by Star Trek communicators. But sometimes it can be more ridiculous. Let's say in believing that what is found in science fiction is somehow like uh, definite and proven, and the way things that, the way things actually do work in the real world, and also assuming that this science fiction is some sort of blueprint that can. Uh, sometimes lead to weird and I would say occasionally stupid places. So yet uh, all too frequently, we fail to really challenge some of the assumptions that are found in science fiction and where those assumptions have taken people in Silicon Valley who are developing different new technologies. Um, but the fact is that all of us use what comes out of Silicon Valley in our everyday lives. And we are impacted by their beliefs and what what they're doing and what they take out of science fiction as well. The uh, wonderfully named podcast, Our Opinions Are Correct, uh, hosted by well-known authors and journalists, Annalie Newitz and Charlie Jane Anders, uh, often explores the nature of science fiction. And recently they kicked off a new mini series within the podcast, called Silicon Valley versus Science Fiction, in which they dive deeper into some of these issues, looking at how some people in Silicon Valley use or, let's say, possibly abuse science fiction to their own ends. Uh, The first episode of this miniseries is out now, uh, as we are speaking, uh, with a new one dropping each month, I think is what it is. I'm getting nods, so yes. Uh, (laughs) And I wanted to talk to them both about the podcast series and about the issue in general of how Silicon Valley views science fiction for better or for worse. So uh, welcome to the podcast. Yeah, thanks
1: so much for having us.
0: Yeah, it's so lovely to be cool. here. Excellent. So let's start with the most obvious of questions, uh, which is why this podcast miniseries, why do you want to focus on this intersection of Silicon Valley and science fiction?
2: Yeah. I mean, we live in San Francisco. We're obviously surrounded by folks in the tech industry and uh, sorry, that was my phone. Uh, So we live in San Francisco. Technology getting in the way already. I will put it in do not disturb. Okay. Sorry. You're going to have to edit that or maybe you won't. I don't know. We live in San Francisco. Okay. Yeah. I mean, we live in San Francisco. We are surrounded by, you know, the tech industry and by, you know, the culture of the tech industry and it's hard not to notice that uh, tech companies and tech workers and tech leaders are constantly referring to science fiction and constantly kind of citing it when they're talking about their products, when they're talking about what they think is going to be happening. And often it's a very skewed version of science fiction. It's a very kind of like they're they're not. It's not really. They're they're kind of often just skimming the surface of what science fiction is talking about. And there's a few. Kind of pivotal works of science fiction that they always seem to come back to.
1: Yeah, and I think also, you know, everything that Charlie says is tr- is true here. Um, and I also think that part of it is just responding to almost the the joke of of Silicon Valley and its. It, misinterpretations of science fiction, like a company called Soylent, which is devoted to, you know, a food slurry, a food substitute. And of course it's named after a novel in which the food Soylent Green is, a, you know, made of people, famously the line from the movie. Spoiler Sorry, alert. it's made of people. So literally this, this company, this food company is naming its product after cannibalism. Um, and I think, I mean, I think that's the most kind of obvious one that always comes up. Um, But then right now we have, you know, uh, Facebook rebranding itself as Meta, naming it after the Metaverse Mm -hmm. from Neil Stevenson's kind of seminal work. And, um, you know, even Neil Stevenson is like rolling his eyes. And, you know, Neil (laughs) Neil loves, you know, a lot of the inventions that come out of Silicon Valley. and He's not, you know, a a doubter, but he was just like, come on, guys, like I invented this. Idea to talk about corporate takeover of media and how terrible it is, and you're naming your company after it. Why, you know?
0: Well, it, it's kind of accurate, though. It is. <laughs> I it. mean,
1: and so that's that's the kind of funny thing, and I think probably some people would argue that Soylent is also accurately named after something disgusting. Um, <laughs> so it, it is a bit of a self-own in a way when Silicon Valley companies right. do this, um, and I. But I also think that we really wanted to kind of come in and maybe suggest to gently or perhaps irascibly to Silicon Valley companies that maybe they start reading different fiction or reading fiction better, you know?
2: <laughs> or yeah, paying more attention. And, you know, there's that tweet that everybody always brings up about, you know, we've successfully created the torment nexus from yes. the book, don't create the torment nexus. <laughs> and I feel like that, that tweet actually does sum up a lot. I feel like we just, we, we kept hearing companies kind of, citing science fiction in a very kind of superficial, unreflective way. And we were like, well, we have a podcast that's about the intersection of science fiction and society. And this is, this is where the rubber is hitting the road right now. This is where it's happening. And you know, the thing you brought up about Star Trek and the communicators leading to flip phones, it's like nobody watching Star Trek would think the message of Star Trek is (laughs) have a cool telecommunication device. Like nobody would like Star Trek Like, I feel like that's just the most kind of superficial way of looking at Star Trek. And it's missing like 99% of the point of Star Trek. And you also see like, I get very grumpy when people are like, we're making a tricorder. And it's like, it's a device that (laughs) that can basically like... Do like some medical tests in an incredibly cumbersome fashion, but it's not like a tricorder. It's not like an MRI machine in, that you hold in your hand. It's like we're nowhere near <laughs> yeah. having that, you know.
1: It's in the shape and of a tricorder.
2: <laughs> it's tricorder shaped. Yeah, like, exactly. Yeah, I, that that always annoys me. But I feel like the more important thing is that people are not engaging with science fiction in a in a more thoughtful way, and they're just and right. often they're retroactively reaching for science fiction to. To make whatever thing that they've decided to put out into the world seem cooler than it actually is rather than actually being inspired. They'll claim to be inspired when in fact it's the other way around.
0: Well, I, I wonder um, – and I, I mean I I completely agree with the thesis, but but to play a little bit of devil's advocate here, I mean specifically with like Soylent, which I've never tried. I've never gotten anywhere near. I have no interest in – it seems like a horrific idea just in general. But like I wonder if – that is not so much like a, a – a ridiculous misreading of science fiction as almost they sort of feel like they're in on the joke and they know that it will get them extra attention. So it just becomes a marketing thing rather than like, you know, oh my gosh, these, these people misread the the science fiction in in that case.
1: Yeah. I mean, I think in the case of Soylent, it's not clear whether the CEO was actually in on the joke. I I know what you're saying. Like, I think you're, I think you're Right. right that sometimes like for example, um, Peter Thiel named his evil spy company Palantir. That's (laughs) an example where I would agree that he knew exactly what he was doing. He's like, yes, I am naming this after the evil orb from the Lord of the Rings that like the evil wizard uses to spy on people. Um, I I think he was, I I mean, you know, say what you will about Peter Thiel. I do think he has a bit of a nasty sense of humor. That's kind of fun. And I think that that was what he was doing there, but with Soylent, not so much, and also even with Meta We don't Palantir, know. I mean,
2: I think it's true that we don't know, and I, I think. Yeah, you're right. You know, I should, I'm, I'm I'm gonna, shouldn't. I shouldn't uh, armchair.
1: Armchair psychoanalyze there. Yeah,
2: I'm going to cut Soylent <laughs> a lot more slack than I would like Meta because I feel like Meta, like I yeah. having, I, I just don't think that the the folks at Facebook or Meta have any kind of self awareness or irony about anything they're doing. No, <laughs> and right. I think that that's that's a, that's the crystal clear example of we are just taking this horrible dystopian thing and being like, look, we've, you know, we've created the torment nexus, kind <laughs> mm-hmm. of.
0: But so, so let's, let's explore the, the meta example. Cause that, that one I, I agree with you on is sort of bizarre. Um, how, how much do you think it matters? Right. I mean, to, to the extent that, um, you know they they've totally misunderstood Snow Crash and and they've they've bought into this idea and they're pitching it uh, as if like yeah we were inspired by the you know the the, the metaverse of, of of Neil Stevenson like does that matter like how how far does this go like I, I understand the 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 overall point that you're raising, but I'm wondering, like, once you get past the, like, well, this is what we're calling it. And it's sort of like loosely based on that vision. Um, like how, how deep does it go? How, how, how much does it matter?
2: I mean, I think that you're right in that it doesn't really matter. Like what, if it's just a branding exercise, I have better things to do with my time than sit around critiquing people's branding. Like, I'm just (laughs) like, that seems like something that, you know, I could just let go. But I think that where it gets more insidious or where it gets more uh, complicated is when you do see people kind of referring back to things in science fiction or things in the kind of meta narrative around science fiction that have elements of eugenics, that have elements of, you know, trying to create some kind of post-human group of people who are, quote unquote, better in some way. I think that there are a lot of things that are interesting thought experiments in science fiction that if misread or handled badly can actually lead to some really horrific outcomes and a lot of them do have to do with this notion of creating a group of people who are are smarter and better than everybody else and relegating the rest of humanity to some kind of you know uh Eloy Morlock kind of split or something I don't know. We were talking about the yeah. Eloy and the Morlocks the other day and I was like I couldn't remember which one were which like I don't know.
1: I was trying to argue that the Eloy were the gig workers um and that the Morlocks uh. were the kind of captains of industry but I I agree that it doesn't it doesn't quite uh
2: doesn't quite, doesn't map,
1: quite map onto, onto, onto today's uh, issues yeah. but I was going to say yeah. that I was just going to add to what Charlie was saying which is that a piece of that story about creating super people, whether it's, you know, men without legs in the metaverse um, or, you know, <laughs> AI charged cyborgs. Um, it is also about what do you do with like the 99 percent of humans who are left behind? Um, and a lot right. of these companies are really interested in that question about how do we manage the billions of people who are using our products? How do we control them, whether through Um, giving them new kinds of like buttons or feeding them particular kinds of information with algorithms. And that is where I think science fiction comes into it because more than just a branding exercise, which undoubtedly it is, I totally agree. It's also a vision of the future that someone like Mark Zuckerberg um, or Peter Thiel or any of these other folks shares with their employees and shares with the world and is saying like, listen, this isn't just about Our product, it's about the direction of civilization. And we call on these narratives of science fiction to kind of help people see themselves within that narrative. And that's when I think it gets very dangerous because that's when it goes from being branding to more like propaganda.
0: Yeah. I mean, I I would go even further than that where I think it's not just propaganda, but it becomes the sort of justification where, you know, the world is this way because we've seen it in this story, you know, X, Y, and Z happens and that's really bad. And therefore we need to build our technology this way to, you know, whatever the, the, the end result is that justifies it as if, as if the science fiction story was like an actual thing that had been seen to happen. Mm-hmm. And, and I know you cover this in in the the first episode, and and I've seen it sort of discussed elsewhere. Um, You know, there are certain tropes and, and, you know, storylines that happen over and over again in science fiction that make some pretty clear assumptions about human nature and the way that people act in certain ways. And therefore, you know, many of these products seem to be designed – to like you know respond to that world that might not exist that oro that only exists in fiction and that's the part that i found most interesting was you know it's one thing to try and solve you know like the whole point uh, in theory that we're told of silicon valley is like we're out here solving real world problems but if they're solving fictional problems that they only think exist in the world then that creates some really really kind of warped incentives and and that's that's the part that i found really interesting about about you know the, the first episode of your podcast and sort of this thought process of trying to think through these things and recognizing like, you know, which, which which of these things that we're trying to do are, are really helping the world and which are like helping the world in our minds or, or in the metaverse, I guess. Yeah.
2: <laughs> I w- yeah. go, go ahead, on. Charlie. Go,
0: go <laughs> you, go, you go ahead.
1: I was just going to say something um, kind of offhand, which is whenever I think about Silicon Valley's goals I always think about that Uh scene from the show Silicon Valley where the investor character has taken a ton of acid or whatever ayahuasca or something and he's sitting in a bathroom at a truck stop and he's tripping balls and he's rocking back and forth and he's saying making the world a better place making the
2: world a better
1: place (laughs) and he starts to see like all these logos from Silicon Valley companies like raining down on his head as he like chants to himself in this disgusting bathroom so anyway that's what I often think of when I think of how we use science fiction, uh, in Silicon Valley, it's that hallucinogen that's making us see this beautiful, weird, unreal world in our bath, in our shitty bathrooms, literally shitty. Um, so I think, yeah. um, go ahead, Charlie. Sorry, that was my Well, I was going to say anecdote. that,
2: you know, the thing that when we did our first episode, which was about AI and about like Nick Bostrom and about the culture and all these other stories about Ian H- M. Banks' The Culture Novels and other stories about super intelligent AI uh, that are, you know, amazing stories that are some of my favorite stories ever, uh, especially the Ian M. Banks stuff. Um, the thing that surprised me when we got into it was how much... You know, I sort of expected it to be Silicon Valley leaning into the utopian aspect. Like we mentioned Star Trek before, where like Star Trek is like, it's a it's a brighter future where it's like kind of vaguely post-scarcity and we don't have money anymore. And there's just replicators and everything is great. Um, Leading into the kind of utopian, like we're building utopia. But in fact, when you look at, especially the AI discourse, but this, I think this applies to a lot of other stuff. It's all fear-based. It's all based on yeah. like- this notion that there is going to be some kind of inevitable AI uprising that's going to kill us all, or that AI is, is inevitably going to emerge and if we're not careful, it's going to be hostile to humans or indifferent to humans, which might be just as bad. And so we need to proactively create the AI we want, the AI that we want to partner with in the world, because otherwise, Roko's Basilisk is going to come and eat us or something. And um, it's it's bizarre to me that. That's the marketing, like Annalise said this amazing thing in the episode, which I've seen people quoting a lot since then, which is the paranoia is the marketing. And it's like this weird idea that like we're all that stands between the world and an AI apocalypse, which it feels like a very, it's a very, it's like almost the AI apocalypse is, is one shade more plausible to me than the zombie apocalypse like the the real ai apocalypse is just a bunch of like half baked mar- al- algorithms making choices about like whether people get jobs whether people get involuntarily committed to mental institutions whether people are allowed to to have agency in their own lives that's a thing that's already happening the AI apocalypse they're talking about where, you know, it's basically the Terminator or something, you know, they might as well say we have to spend billions of dollars building this product or Cthulhu is going to rise up from the deep and eat us because that's <laughs> about as plausible in my mind. And that's
1: basically what they're arguing. And when we were working on the episode, I wound up reading a lot of stuff on the Open AI blog. Um, Open AI is the company that makes ChatGPT, which is, of course, one of the most popular apps of the last year. And um, Sam Altman, who's the founder of the company, as well as some of the folks that he works with have these really long what I would describe as just kind of bad sci-fi stories on the site about exactly what Charlie Jane is talking about. These kind of visions of a dark future that will come about if AI is not aligned with our human values. And I love how whenever they mention human values on the open AI blog, they kind of have a human values TBD. Like what are human values? (laughs) We'll worry about what that is later. We're definitely going to align with, we're going to, our product will align with them but we haven't figured out what they are yet. Um, uh, and of course, Nick so Bostrom, has, we, we, Nick Bostrom, who's we can, like we can their ask, muse, chat, ch- has like... I
0: was going to say, oh, we, go ahead. we can ask ChatGPT what our human yes. values... Well, and get their idea...
1: So this is what is so bonkers <laughs> to me, is that yeah. they, they've been very... Their muse is this guy, Nick Bostrom, who's an ethicist, um, right. who talks a lot about the AI uprising in his book, Superintelligence. And he and, I think, Altman and his gang all think the way chat GPT will learn to be aligned with human values is the same way it's learned to talk, right? It will just absorb a bunch of data and then over time it will learn yeah. human values. And it's like, right. yeah, we've seen how well that goes when we unleash, you know, <laughs> these algorithms and they learn to be Nazis almost immediately. Um, and which goes back <laughs> yeah. to what Charlie Dean was saying about how the real danger is of course, letting these very biased, algorithms make decisions about our lives. Um, But I also, I wanted to add one more thing that's really just a kind of nerdy sci-fi point that I want to make, which is that one of the things that really bothers both of us about this is that the stories that altman and these open eye ai people are telling are really old cliched science fiction stories that all come out of yeah. the mid 20th century early 20th century they're not even based on kind of contemporary science fiction like have you read ted chang guys like come on you know like we have a much more or have you read like uh, the Murderbot series? You know, the, we, we have science fiction has moved on from the robot uprising. Right. And yet Silicon Valley is still like nestled in this like Isaac Asimov world of the 1950s. <laughs> and they just have never left. They've just never read anything that went beyond that.
2: Yeah, and that is the thing that I found when we were when we were starting to work on this series. I I think both of us did a lot of, digging into, like, okay, what are the science fiction works that people mention? When, like, what when Silicon Valley, like, when, when, you know, Titans of Industry and, like, leaders of Silicon Valley mentioned their favorite science fiction books, I went and read, like, as many lists of, like, you know, Mark Zuckerberg's favorite science fiction books, Elon Musk's favorite science fiction books, Bill Gates, like, a bunch of others, like, a bunch of somewhat less known ones as well. And it was all, like, it was a lot of Asimov, there were, there were some Neil Stevenson in there, I think in a couple mm-hmm. of cases, but mostly it was, it, they hadn't been keeping up. They hadn't been keeping up with the field. They hadn't really. Right. And like Ted Chang has actually written some great essays kind of criticizing what, what we're calling AI, which I think if you want to annoy Ted Chang, call, you know, a large language model <laughs> AI and he'll, you know, you <laughs> will, will just like immediately... bang
1: out an article for the New Yorker slapping you around.
2: <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, I've been on panels with Ted where he said, you know, don't, you know, these are, these are large language models. These are, you know, machine learning. They're not AI. And like you calling them AI is a distortion of what AI actually is. It's not, you know, it's like, Saying that your your cat is is a U.S. senator, which is like I often say about Adelie's cat, but I'm usually joking when I, mean, I say it. I mean
1: he's a he is a distinguished gentleman. Um, yeah, I think the funny thing is that, and the reason why I brought up Ted Chang is he has this incredible, um, I guess it's a novella. Called it's a novella. The, yeah, the life cycle of software objects, oh my God, which so is good. beautiful. I highly recommend that your listeners check it out. Um, and it's really a a very realistic picture of how AI might emerge from basically like neopets kind of. Um, So they're like Mm -hmm. little software creatures that people are raising and through the act of rearing them, they actually wind up becoming essentially sentient. Right. And The real worry is that they're being marginalized, you know, not that they're engaging in an uprising, but that in fact, their lives are super precarious. The virtual world that they live in is being shut down. So people have to create an open source world for them to live in. That's not a spoiler. That's kind of a premise of the story. Um, And same thing. I mean, I brought up uh, Martha Wells Murderbot series because it's the same thing. It's a future that you could easily see like a Sam Altman just like getting a total Woody for where it's like, oh, there's like these (laughs) robo soldiers that are doing all the labor. Awesome. But again, they are incredibly oppressed. You know, they're they're these creatures who have no free will. They're essentially enslaved. Um, And they're not they're not able to have an uprising like they're they're your typical enslaved creatures, you know, they're, they're really right. hemmed in and um, have no options. So I think it's funny that like, you know, open AI is like, Oh, we have to worry about the super powerful, super intelligent AI. And it's like, yeah, but in reality it's, that's not what we're making. <laughs> that's, that's not the goal. Right.
0: You know, I, it was interesting in listening um, because like, I've been familiar with, with Nick Bostrom's stuff because it, it, you, if you live around here you can't avoid it because it just keeps coming up and i i was always sort of confused as to, to why it was that interesting like it always struck me a little bit as like so i mean we haven't said it directly you've mentioned you know his work but but the the paperclip uh example is is like the one that everybody yeah. talks about which is like basically like the efficiency idea where it's like you tell and and mythical ai super intelligence whatever to like make the most efficient system for creating paper clips and it destroys the entire universe in the pursuit of making more paper clips or whatever That's a very simplified version of it and to me like that always it, it struck me as the same sort of uh thought experiment as like the the trolley experiment of <sighs> you know which also comes up mm-hmm. in the ai world a lot as well where you, where you have the trolley going down a road and it goes straight it's gonna kill a group of people where if if you pull the switch, it'll switch to a different track and kill one person or I forget what the exact experiment is. And the question is like, how do you determine the like morals or ethics of, of do you not touch the switch or do you touch the switch? Um, And like the criticism of that is always like, that's not realistic. That's not, that's, that's not the real question that you're going to ask if you're developing any sort of, you know, intelligence or, or, you know, it's not even not even intelligence. And the, the paperclip example is not one that is something that is likely to come up. That said, like, I, I did think like the fact that a bunch of people who were working on AI related products would sort of cite to it was at least a, a step in the right direction from the world that we lived in, where people were like, ah, this stuff will sort itself out. Like I'm just building like this cool new technology and it will sort itself out. And here there was at least this like recognition that things could go wrong. And maybe before we build the thing that we're building, let's think through things that might go wrong. The fact that they picked, you know, examples that are very, very unlikely, you know, it, it's certainly a criticism of that, but at least they were saying, like, you know, let's not just build and assume that everything will work itself out. Let's recognize that there are some concerns here, and so I, I appreciated that angle of it, even as I agree with you that it was sort of like a stupid example to to focus on, and the fact that it still keeps coming up years after uh, still bothers me. But but, and I think I think you guys highlighted that very well in 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 the episode, but you know. So, so I mean, I, I guess the, the the question I'm getting at is like, do do you at least think that there like, do you agree to some extent that there is some value in thinking through these and using these as, you know, scenarios to understand and think through, even if you're saying like like get with the times and pick better examples.
2: <laughs> I mean, I think that the paperclip thing. The, to the extent that the paperclip thing is useful, it's useful in the sense of like a general idea that we need to be mindful about how we deploy technology and that, you know, that we need to understand that giving computers too literal instructions, like or instructions that they will interpret too literally can lead to really bad outcomes. But at the same time, it is this thing of like, you know, as I said earlier there is actual real world harm being done by algorithms right now like right. to real people and people like Timnit Gebru and others have been pointing out the the harm is done by bias embedded in algorithms and there was a really horrifying article that i read the other day about people being involuntarily committed to mental institutions based on you know yep. some algorithm that made a decision about them or whether or i know it was the welfare system it was like a lot of welfare systems are now using algorithms yep. to decide if you are a welfare cheat or not, and it's based on really, you know, just a bunch of like, how well do you speak this language? Like, how, you know, how stable are you? Based on stuff that's like not really an indicator of stability, but just like some bias that they encoded into the system. I think that there are, there are massive real world harms being done by algorithms right now, and to say like, well, yes, we like, we can't worry about the real world harms we are currently doing because we're too busy worrying about like the giant panda that might come down from the skies and eat (laughs) us. It's like, yeah, I would say that there's like a 0.0000001 chance that there's like a a 50 foot tall panda that's going to appear and start eating people. Whereas there's a 100% 100 chance that you are doing harm currently and that you are not willing to address that. And I think that's the problem is that this kind of paranoia about the possible harms of some like super intelligent AI is... Both a means to kind of uh, to justify them spending a lot of resources on trying to align AI with our values to prevent that, but it's also a, just a distraction. Mm-hmm. It's a distraction yeah. from real, actual, demo- demonstrable problems demonstrable demonstrable problems. Yeah, that are happening right now.
1: I think that's true, and it's funny because um, Mike, as you were describing the paperclip story, I was like, you know, I feel like the paperclip story is the best piece of science fiction that Nick Bostrom wrote. And it actually does <laughs> adhere to like a the rules of a good story, right? It it flips your expectations. Right. You're like, oh, it's a dangerous AI. It's gonna bomb the world. And it's like, no, it's actually gonna do this other thing. And um, it's a great Twilight Zone episode. And I and I mean right. the 1960s Twilight Zone, because again, we're kind of still back right. in history. And I think that's why it's a good smokescreen, because it's such a good story and it has that gotcha element, and it totally totally diverts your attention away from the actual harms. And you could tell that paperclip story about literally anything. Like someone could have told that story in 1850 about a paperclip machine and said like, whoa, the paperclip machine, it's going to go crazy (laughs) and it's going (laughs) to eat all the workers fingers. And like, you know, it's not it's not specific to any particular tech. It's just like, oh, this is one way that scary machines can go wrong um, in a surprising fashion. Um, and I think to go back I wanted to kind of go back to something that Charlie Jane brought up earlier, which is that um, like lurking underneath these stories really is um, a, a project around uh, trying to create a new caste system of human beings. And like yeah. part of the the quest for super intelligent AI is to imagine, not just that it will be in alignment with us, but that we'll be in alignment with it. We're going to create like a new super being, like a new super authoritarian leader that's going to smile upon us somehow. Um, and I think that's a super dangerous uh, fantasy. And um, and we're not even questioning that aspect of it at all.
2: Yeah. And once you assume that there's a thing called intelligence, which we can define and quantify, which we, I don't believe and we can- And commodify. And commodify. I don't believe that we can define it. I don't believe that we can quantify it. I think that it's something that we're, we, you know, we don't have a theory of mind. And we'd also don't have a real sense of what it means to be intelligent, you know, and uh, this is this is personal for me, because my father was like, was kind of famous for being like, you know, a child prodigy and like, was like, listed in a bunch of places as having like the highest IQ and stuff. And he used to just say to me, like, this is all, this is all, can I say bullshit on this podcast? This is all bullshit. (laughs) This is all bullshit. It doesn't mean anything. He lived through it and he knew that it was bullshit. And he was a teacher and he believed that anybody can be intelligent if they're, if they're willing to learn. And if they're willing to listen and kind of open their minds and it's a learned skill, at least to some extent. Um, And that some people obviously who are exposed to more complicated inputs when they're younger have a, have a head start, but it's not really something that's, there's not, I, there, there yeah. may be some parts of what we call intelligence that are genetic, but I think a lot of it is really environmental and it's all a, it's a mixture of both. It's all a mishmash. The point is once you decide that there's a thing called intelligence that we can quantify and that we can identify and, and we're going to, and computers are going to achieve that at some point, they're going to become super intelligent. They're going to have artificial general intelligence. It's, seems to just like automatically proceed from that assumption about computers to the the notion that we can decide which humans are intelligent, which humans are are not. And you have all those weird charts in Bostrom's book about like, you know, trying to engineer a more intelligent human species, which is just straight up eugenics. And I think that, you know, there's no accident that some of the folks who are most um, keen on this sort of these Bostrom ideas and on this, uh, kind of paranoid fantasy about AI also do kind of buy into some, some theories about, you know, that of the bell curve or whatever. And I think Annalie may be able to speak more to that than, than I can. But yeah, this notion of human biodiversity that is yeah, basically... That certain certain yeah.
1: people are superior. And I mean, I think right. that's one of the things that's so interesting about Someone like Sam Altman, who's behind OpenAI, he's also behind like Worldcoin, which was the like look into the orb and you will get some money. Uh, and he's also very excited. I, I I don't know if you guys remember Worldcoin, but it was like one of the great cryptocurrency uh, experiments of the last couple of years, where they literally handed okay. out these these glowing orbs to people um, in developing countries.
0: I, I somehow missed. Okay, that. Uh,
1: look it up. Worldcoin. It is. Oh, Holi- what bad science fiction! Hilarious. They, okay. um, the company was giving out these orbs, and what they were doing was they were getting people's retinal scans. So it was really a scam oh. to get retinal scans from people. So they would get these retinal scans and then give you a world coin, a piece of cryptocurrency. Uh, in response. And um, it, wow, it never I really I totally
2: went. missed this too. God. I told yeah. you about
1: it at the time, Charlie Jane, I was obsessed with it. It never really went anywhere. There were a few like articles uh, about it um, and it, it just kind of disappeared. But Sam Altman also is really interested in UBI, UBI Universal Basic Income, right. which sounds really lovely on its face until you start thinking about who's managing the program and what is it intended to do. And how it's intended to fit into this view that, that AI will take over and there's going to be this class of Eloy who are just hanging out in the trees <laughs> getting high. Um, and what do we do with all those Eloy, right? We got to do something with them. Um, and so it's almost like there's a whole package around this AI story that involves the AI being kind of on top and then this whole administrative layer of humans who are like helping to manage the, the unwashed masses who are doing
0: get right. work
1: or nothing you know just living on ubi because they've been rendered obsolete which is really really dystopian and i i don't see i don't see any upside to this vision it's very malthusian yeah
0: it's yes yeah <laughs> i mean it's interesting because like i i have i have very mixed feelings about ubi but in a different way and it's a different podcast yeah it's a whole it's
1: giant worth, question we're yeah. getting
0: into but like it was interesting to me to see like um, Andrew Yang, you know, running for president, was like had this. It was really into the UBI concept, and had this very simplistic, sort of very science fiction driven view of the world that gig work was going to destroy uh, all jobs, or, or like or whatever, like if automation and gig work were going to sort of wipe out standard jobs. Therefore, we needed UBI, and 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 all these people flocked to him, and and he got like a huge amount of support from silicon valley Mm -hmm. and like i i had gone through like when he released his his you know tech platform and i had gone through it was like every one of these the things in this platform are stupid and like not based in reality (laughs) and i sort of thought that like other people in silicon valley would recognize that sort of understanding technology and yet he got a, a huge amount of support here. And i am now that I'm thinking about it, I'm sort of thinking back on it. It's like, it feels like a lot of that was driven by the sort of like science fiction, you know, belief in science fiction as, as kind of like a religion of where the world must be going. If you know, it, we're building this future and this is the, this is the way we answer the problems, which brings up a different issue, which just occurred to me, which is, this, this is interesting where it's like, it's almost a way of, and I guess you guys kind of said this, so I shouldn't, I, I say this as if I just made this big realization and all I'm doing is recognizing what you've been yelling for the last you know, 40 <laughs> minutes, which, which is that like effectively it is a way of passing the buck, right? Of saying we're doing all these things that are going to have consequences um, and we're going to take these sort of simplistic solutions to them because that's what the science fiction is sort of telling us to do rather than doing the hard work of actually trying to solve the real world problems that are already existing and which like some of the work that we're doing is, is making worse.
2: Yeah.
0: And, yeah, and, yeah. Which again,
2: and again, I want to just get back to the notion of like, if you actually engage like in a deeper level with science fiction, like a lot of science fiction does a really good job of kind of thinking about you know, how technology affects people and how technology causes social sure. change and the ways that like different types of people are affected differently. And, you know, if you really pay attention to Star Trek or if you really pay attention to Ian and Banks or, or Ted Chegg, you're going to think more about like, how can we how can we view all these different groups of people as stakeholders, as people who are, going, yeah. are affected by our work and therefore have a stake in it. And I think that that unfortunately does not, uh, that doesn't go hand in hand with quarterly profits or with, uh, you know, VC, you know, ROI or whatever. It doesn't, it doesn't, you know, I think that that's part of where the problem is. Like we literally can't think in a broader way about like the impact of our work because we, our funding depends on, on us not thinking about it. And so, but we want to be high-minded or feel feel as if we're high-minded. And so here's what we're going to do instead of thinking deeply about it.
1: Yeah, it makes me think about Meta again, um, because uh, I, I mean, I think you've covered this, Mike, and everybody's talked about how Facebook would do these little experiments where they would just like turn off a country, um, you know, <laughs> and uh, and, and you know, they're this global corporation, but they really only think about themselves as a U.S. corporation in a lot of ways, a lot of important ways. And that's exactly the kind of thing that science fiction should remedy is like Mark Zuckerberg should read some science fiction and be like, oh, wait, the things that I do here in my office could affect someone in Myanmar. Wow. Or in Cambodia or whatever. (laughs) And it's like, but without that context, the decisions they're making are incredibly um, destructive.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, 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 I. I think it's interesting. Like, I, I definitely, like, I believe in, in the value of science fiction to help people think through different challenges. But, you know, it, it, it occurs to me, like, this, this is one of the things that, like, if you, if, if you, deal with the like world of scenario planning right there's always like this big thing that that they always try and reinforce which is this idea that these are possible futures not predictions right and the distinction actually matters because if it's like a prediction that's you're saying this is what is sort of likely to happen and therefore you have to deal with it whereas if it's possible futures the idea is like it's one of many different worlds that that we could see. And nobody's expecting that the world that is created here to actually come true, but it gives you a tool for thinking through different possibilities and, and different things. And I think that's really valuable, but it feels like even as people sort of might say that, or sort of, you know, on the face of it, recognize it intrinsically, they're not. And that's one of the concerns that, that you're having. Um, and that, you know, and also obviously the fact that they're using these completely out of date, you know, historical science fiction versions rather than the more up-to-date ones which are more relevant and more likely to actually have have some sort of impact today.
1: Yeah. Um, yeah, one of the things I've always really liked about the Institute for the Future, which is a foresight organization yes. here in the Valley, um, is that they do always emphasize, like, it's not, it's there's no one path. There's like, you've got to be thinking right. about five different pathways and that's the only way you can plan. Um, so it isn't as if, Silicon Valley companies don't have access to like a think tank right up the street from them (laughs) that could like give them a little help. And a lot of them do like a lot of these companies do send people to um, Institute for the Future events and stuff. But um, yeah, I think I think what we're missing is the kind of negative and critical self-awareness of science fiction in a lot of these companies. And that's really important. I mean, um, it's not just about selling paranoia. It's about taking that paranoia on board and saying like, wait, we're in a position to make a choice to not have that future and to like fix our algorithms so that they're not being used to determine prison sentences and things like that. Um, but that's not happening.
0: (laughs) So, so, um, what, what else is coming up with, with the podcast? I, I mean, as I said, I've, I've heard the first episode, um, but, but what, what other, things are you planning to cover in, in future episodes?
1: Um, so our next episode, so we just dropped an episode today, which, um, and Ah. that is not part of the series. So if if you're interested in short stories, check that one out. Um, but our next one that's coming in two weeks, um, is going to be focused on, um, different ways of thinking about, um, Oh man, how am I going to summarize this? Um so, <laughs> <laughs> so it's it's basically it's an it's an episode that we're calling difficult geniuses. and it's about the myth of the uh, brilliant jerk, the difficult genius um, CEO and how that has become part of Silicon Valley culture and how it's connected actually to a very long history of representing mad scientists and mm-hmm. what that right. means um, yeah, and we have a- Yeah, we have a couple more episodes coming up after that. Charlie Jane, tell us all. Yeah,
2: well, so for the Difficult Geniuses episode, I I managed to talk to Christopher Cantwell, who – has, is current, has been writing the Iron Man comic for Marvel, but also was one of the two show writers of the show Hot and Catch Fire. So he had some interesting perspectives on both how Tony Stark, you know, Iron Man is depicted in pop culture, but also he created, he helped to create this other character who's sort of a, a tech you know, entrepreneur, innovator. So that was a really yeah. interesting conversation that I'm excited for people to hear some of. And I think we're, we're talking about doing some upcoming episodes about, you know, I don't know, space travel and like Basically, like privatization of space and how that's a thing that Silicon Valley seems very excited about that comes out of science fiction. And I, there's a few other ideas that we're, we're kind of landing also, on right now. Also, one
1: that I'm super excited about is we for sure in a month and a half are going to have an episode about um, Ayn Rand. And, uh, yeah, we're definitely going to talk about Ayn Rand.
2: So, and like, yeah. Charlie's falling on that sword. Like she has I done I did all of the research. Ayn
1: Rand <laughs> reading. I'm just going to be like, tell me everything. <laughs>
2: <laughs> yeah. I mean, w- when I looked, like I said before, I did a ton of research on like what science fiction writers do people talk about. And, you know, you see people talking about like, they'll come up with these lists of like books that they like, and it's often really just the most bland recommendations. But then when you look at like the, the authors that people actually really cite and, and go back to, Ayn Rand keeps coming up. Like, I think she's one of the main science hmm. fiction writers that a lot of people, that a certain cadre of people in Silicon Valley are really, really into and, you know, that's, uh, that's super, certainly interesting.
0: Yeah. I mean, I, I have told people this before, but it's like, I, I read uh, Atlas Shrugged uh, in college and, and I read it it's a big book and, and like parts of it are well-written, parts of it are just tedious, uh, but like I read it and I, I, I enjoyed it and I, and I, as I read it, I was thinking like, oh yeah, okay. Yeah. This makes sense. This is, this is really interesting. This makes sense. And then I finished it. And I started thinking about it. I said, wait, none of that makes sense. <laughs> like, if you put that in the real world, there are all of these other things that are completely ignored and that don't make any sense at all. And I was like, okay, everybody who's read this has to see that, right? Like, but no. <laughs> like, Not at all. Yeah,
2: oh. no, it's, Yeah, but, yeah yes. but we have some other episode ideas for the series that we're batting around and, you know, we're going to sit down soon and kind of map it out. So I feel yeah. like... Yeah. You know, the reaction to the AI episode has been really gratifying so far and I feel like there's more stories like that that we can also delve into about
0: Yeah. Well, I think it's I think it's great. I think um I mean you you've mentioned this a little bit with like the the Ted Chang recommendations and stuff but like more stuff about like the more modern science fiction that is really good and is worth reading, because there is a lot. There's a lot of really fantastic science fiction, um, some of which both of you write. Oh, thanks. So yeah. Good, yeah, thanks. Good to, <laughs> for people to 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 be looking up. Um, but but I think this series is going to be great. I, I really enjoyed the first episode. Yeah, thanks. Uh, mm.
1: and well, we're big fans uh, of your work too. So. Yes, <laughs> thank you for
2: inviting it's us such, to chat. <laughs> such an honor to be on your podcast. Absolutely
0: well it's it's, a, it's an honor for for me to have you guys uh both on here and to be talking about this and i am excited as i said to see to see where the rest of the series goes and um thank you yeah thanks for for making the 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 series um and for joining me on the podcast yeah
1: cool yeah thanks
0: and uh cool and thanks to everyone for listening as well uh we'll be back next
2: you. Week. bye hey. If we don't stand up to them, someone will get hurt To grab a shovel and dig up the tent If we don't stand up to them, someone will get
1: To grab a shovel and dig up the cat